0: I can't remember the last time we played Elvis on the show. That is so great. Our Raji Hall is with us now this morning. Raji, don't you want to see that new Elvis movie?
1: Oh, it looks so good. And the uh, kid, I shouldn't say kid, the actor Austin that Butler. plays Elvis <laughs> looks amazing too. In the role.
0: I know it looks really good. That's next on my list. All right. So we're talking about food trucks this morning.
1: Yes. Who doesn't love a food truck? I love food trucks save for one thing, which is that they always have long lineups. And if they don't have a long lineup on the odd uh, time, then you, you know, that's not a good food truck and you got to go somewhere else. So that's the one thing that I have with them. But in North Van, you know, at the shipyards all summer long, there are tons of food trucks and what looks like thousands of people and people will just like, they will go with the intention of, okay, I'm going to stand in line for like, an hour at three different food trucks and that'll be dinner. And that'll kind of be like entertainment for the family for the night. There's bands playing and there's like tons of stuff to check out and people just like roam around, eat food from the food trucks and enjoy the live music. And it's a good time. It's a really fun time for families. Now those food trucks in North Van at least, they've always required special permits to operate on public land and they have been very hard to get. Uh, I know people who started the process, they, they already operated a food business of some kind and then they tried to move into the realm of food trucks And they got discouraged along the way and just stopped because the red tape was uh, too much. It was taking too long to process. Well, in April, at least in North Van, the council looked at policies um, that could possibly change to allow for food trucks to get up and running more easily. Okay, it's good. It's a good first step. But I guess so many people, so many potential vendors got discouraged to the point that they only got three applications for this year that's it. three applications from potential vendors and this is after previous summers i'm talking like the lonsdale key area the shipyards was packed with food truck options and these three that get to like the 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 precious spots down there at shipyards they're super lucky because at this rate uh they're going to be raking it in right no competition and and i made this story made me think simmy Of how Kennedy Stewart said that if he was reelected, this is in Vancouver, of course, but he said he one of the things he wanted to do to improve culture and make, you know, Vancouver, this international city and attract tourists more, uh, was to keep bars open later. And I hate that idea.
0: (laughs) I think they're actually going to be making an announcement about that. Uh, They've got some kind of nighttime plan that they're making an announcement about in the next couple of days.
1: Yeah, I think it's more trouble than it's worth, and I think it only appeals to a very small percentage of people, and it's not like staying out extra late is going to like make our the culture in Vancouver thrive, but when I look at things that make up culture like entertainment, um, like theater performances, that kind of thing, or I think about food as a big part of culture... I think like food trucks are actually super important in that realm. I think that the the presence um, and the ability of like food trucks to be out there when people want to bite, to make it more casual, to, doesn't have to be like such an event. You know, uh, I was walking Stanley Park with some friends last weekend and on our long stroll, we were like, why is there no food along the way? Like why is there, I mean, there's a little bit, uh, but there's no like easy, breezy, quick option along the way. You don't have variety. You don't have food trucks along Stanley Park. That to me seems like a missed opportunity. I would love to see more opportunities for small businesses to share their fare out there, to, to share their food that they're making. And in this economic racket that we're currently in, It would probably be easier for a lot of restaurants to go mobile and not have to pay for brick and mortar at this point.
0: Who knows, right? There is a lot of red tape, though, for them. And clearly, that's what they thought there was on the North Shore. If only three trucks came forward to say, we want to open up.
1: Yeah, so some of that red tape is removed, but people, if they've gone through it once, sometimes they're like, okay, that's enough. I've been discouraged enough. I'm not going to try this whole thing again because it is so much work.
0: I know. It does sound like it. Interesting. All right. Thanks for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. All right. Found a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This
2: is Mornings with Simi.
0: Took a lot of meetings, and we're talking multiple marathon meetings that stretched over weeks, hundreds of speakers, and literally dozens of amendments. But Vancouver City Council approved the controversial Broadway plan last night by a vote of seven to four. So who voted for it? Well, you had Mayor Kennedy Stewart, Councilors Adrian Carr, Pete Fry, Christine Boyle, Lisa Dominato, uh, Sarah Kirby Young, Rebecca Bly. Who was against it? Counselors Melissa DeGenova, Gene Swanson, Colleen Hardwick, and Michael Weeb. So what does this mean? Well this is a 30-year plan to turn that Broadway corridor between Clark and Vine uh, into what they call a kind of second downtown. And the people who want this plan say it will create much-needed housing, jobs, amenities built around the Millennium Line extension that is under construction right now. Let's talk more about it now. Kit Sauter joins us, co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. Good morning, Kit.
3: Good morning, Sammy. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. So how are you feeling about this?
3: I feel uh, pretty good that the plan's been passed. Um, It it was a marathon. I was uh, working and watching out of the corner of my eye for most of the 14-hour session yesterday. And um, I I think that the thing that listeners need to understand is is this is a 30-year plan. It is um, $1.1 billion of community investment planned for the first 10 years, right? That's upgrades to parks, that's building a new park that's um, looking to invest in community centers and and senior centers and further amenities. And it's adding um, tens of thousands of new Vancouverites to the area, um, hopefully within a 15, 20-minute walk of uh, the most important jobs sector, uh, jobs region in the province. Uh, It's one in four jobs in Metro Vancouver. It's one in six jobs in British Columbia in the Broadway corridor in the downtown core. And critically, it's it's 1 in 12 jobs west of Ontario.
0: Okay, but do you think there's enough protection in there for renters? Because this was an ongoing concern during all these discussions.
3: Yeah, so the Renters Advisory Committee worked really hard um, to provide constructive feedback to council, and um, council heard us. We saw three councillors from three different parties um, bring forward amendments that reflected the motions that we had passed uh, supporting Broadway plan and encouraging amendment and improvement. Um, most of those got integrated into uh, the final plan as it, as it has been passed. And I'm confident in saying that the Broadway corridor will now have um, among the strongest protections for renters in North America. And it's based off of hard one um, wisdom, right? Uh, the mistakes that were made by Burnaby in Metro town resulted in dem evictions and rent evictions, um that cost the last mayor his job uh there in burnaby and so city of vancouver council and staff um took that as precedent and took the reforms that were brought in by the new mayor mike hurley um to implement here and so we've got uh, protections that will include bridging uh bridge financing so that folks who do get displaced the developer will have to pay so that you get your rent covered and bridged. Um, you will be given first right of return if you're displaced in a Broadway corridor to a unit in the same neighborhood of a comparable type. So you've got a two bedroom plus, you will be given the opportunity to say yes or no to another two bedroom plus. And most importantly, um, extended protections that include both and either the right to either return at the same rent that you had when you left your old unit or 20% below CMHC assessed uh, market average rent, which means that in this corridor, we could see rents 40, 50, 60% below um, what they currently are, uh, because the Broadway corridor is, is actually more expensive than, than the net average uh, rent citywide.
0: Right. Now, that's all good in theory, right, Kit? Like, the, I guess the problem here is going to be, the concern is going to be putting this into practice and making sure it actually happens.
3: Yeah, 100%. And I, I think that um, your comments off the top are actually a really important framing for the listeners to understand. Uh, we had not a straight up and down vote. We had a number of councillors who were effectively filibustering. Um, we had claims over the course of repeated um, days of the committee of councillors um, claiming that they were being slighted by their colleagues, uh, that they didn't appreciate the comments that were being provided um and it was really petty and quite frankly it wasn't worthy of the city or its voters and i want to point out to uh, the listeners that there were four parties that voted against the broadway plan they voted against the future of the city and what was in its best interest cope the npa team and one of the greens uh basically said that they are not equipped that the parties of the 1900s are not equipped to tackle the problems of the 21st century and so uh voters need to hold their governments accountable They need to hold their political parties accountable and they need to look elsewhere for leadership.
0: Right. But, Kit, the interesting thing is some of those who voted for the plan were also in those same parties. So it it didn't seem to matter what party a councillor belonged to. It was very mixed.
3: Well, that's that's not true. Uh, One green broke ranks with the other two greens. But uh, the NPA team and COPE voted against the Broadway plan in the future of the city.
0: Right. Well, Sarah Kirby Young, like, voted for the plan, used to be one of the NPA. You know, I would still consider her to be mostly NPA. I mean, you had, it did seem to me that it, it was across a lot of different party lines. You had people on both sides of this issue.
3: Right. And so what we saw was we saw the other councillors who ended up voting for the project had constructive debate. They had a back and forth. They took feedback throughout the entire hearing process, through the public consultation process. Many of them changed their minds on policy positions after hearing and measuring feedback from the public. And the majority of those four who voted, I don't believe, acted in good faith. I think they walked into the process knowing how they were going to vote at the end, which is not the job of council. And uh, they spent time, in my view, trying to poison pill the plan with uh, bad amendments.
0: Right. So it moves forward now, though, Kit. So what are the next steps here?
3: Well, next steps, uh, the mayor introduced uh, an amendment um, to make sure that implementation was delivered by September 1st, 2022. So before the election, we will see staff bring forward an implementation plan, which provides uh, certainty and market predictability so that for profit, nonprofit developers um, can consider how they might start submitting uh, plans to City Hall. That's a critical um, step because one of the major issues of the last four years has been the logjam at City Hall for permitting. And so one of the things that I had hoped we would get to with the Broadway plan was that we would get to a place where city council was not micromanaging individual, um, build and design because they're not planners, they're not architects and that we were getting to a place where our planners could focus on what their real job should be, which is stewarding the public space and making sure that there are benefits and dividends, um, for the citizens of Vancouver. But, uh, the Broadway plan Well, a admirable template for what the Vancouver plan should be and what will hopefully become the dozen other new local area plans over the course of the next decade that will cover the rest of the city um, only gets us part of the way there. And so uh, I hate to tell the listeners, but um, we're going to have to continue to work to fight for affordability, to fight for livability, to fight for uh, green, vibrant, leafy public spaces. Um, It's a good plan. And I'm looking forward to the next 30 years where we get to build off of it um, and build a better city for everybody.
0: Okay, let me ask this. As a renter, then, do you feel this plan protects renters?
3: Yes, I do. And uh, I will stand in solidarity with the VTU, the Vancouver Tenants Union, and other tenants activist organizations uh, if and when um, the protections are not met. Um, Governments should be afraid of their voters um civil servants should be responsive and uh these protections are written now they need to be enshrined and enforced so uh i'll be keeping an eye on this i'll be making sure that the members of the renters advisory committee uh, are are keen to it and um we'll be doing everything we can to make sure that this council and the next um is protecting the interests of renters who make up more than 60 percent of the citizens of vancouver
0: all right kit thank you for your time Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Kit Sauter, who's the co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee, talking about the passing of the Broadway plan. Boy, it was a marathon couple of weeks to try to get this thing done. They finally voted on a vote of seven to four. And yes, you can bet they'll be talking about this right up until this October's elections and beyond. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't know a whole lot of people out there who've gotten that fourth dose of COVID-19 vaccine. I keep waiting to hear more about this, but it feels like that whole process has really slowed down. Some people have been waiting, wondering when are they going to get the notification of this? So what is going on? And then we hear the news that there are thousands upon thousands of doses of vaccine that are just set to expire in the next four to five weeks. So what is happening? Well, we thought we would ask somebody who might know. Dr. Brian Conway joins us now, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Hello, Dr. Conway.
4: Hello, Simi.
0: How are you today?
4: I'm well. This is a first. I'm actually in England on business, and you're catching me in the afternoon. So before afternoon tea... Uh, let us uh, talk about COVID vaccine.
0: <laughs> I am so jealous that you're about to have afternoon tea. Uh, but yes, let us talk about this. What seems to be the holdup, Dr. Conway? Why are more people not getting the notification to get that booster dose if they want one?
4: I think there's genuine scientific controversy on this issue as to who should be eligible first, who should be eligible at all, and who should potentially wait for the variant-specific vaccine to become available in the fall. It's creating confusion and I would invite Dr. Henry and her uh, counterparts across Canada to have a quick meeting so that we are all saying the same thing so that we buy into the vaccine program that has served us so well up until now.
0: Okay, so what is the controversy then about it? And what do you mean variant specific vaccine? What is this
4: all about? Well, the next vaccines that will be out in the fall are likely to be adapted from the ones we've received until now and be more effective against the Omicron-type variant. So for some, it might be worth waiting that time to the fall to get that one and to not get one right now because that would end up being two vaccines too close together. So I think, to me, that that's a very appealing thing. And there's certain people who are more immunosuppressed whose immune systems aren't working, who've gotten there as well as those of others who should, you know, who have got their third shot six months ago, they should probably get a fourth shot and and uh, they should be prioritized right now rather than everyone else. But again, we're presenting very complicated, confusing messages and that's not serving anyone well.
0: Right. So I'm wondering is what you just said makes perfect sense. That if, we're, if we talk about turning this into something like the flu where we need a shot every year, then wait until the fall makes sense. But why aren't health officials just saying that? Why aren't they just telling us?
4: Well, I don't know, and that's why I'm inviting them to meet. So the whole process of vaccination where we're at right now, to me, there's three things. Number one, 40% British Columbians haven't even gotten their third shot. Get your third shot. You need it. Second, some people are eligible to get their fourth shot in British Columbia. Please get that. If you think you should be on the list and you aren't yet, ask someone, and we will figure that out. Third, everyone get ready for a fourth shot, I believe, in the fall. It'll be variant-specific. But that's the part where we need the public health authorities to really come out and tell us that so that we know what to expect. It doesn't come as a surprise going forward, and we're less confused than we are now.
0: Okay, so we still have a ways to go on this. So when you say you're inviting, you know, the health officials to talk about all this, are you getting anywhere with those discussions?
4: Well, a little bit. I mean, you know, everyone says they're science-based. In Ontario, it's age 50 or 60 based on science. In British Columbia, it's age 70 based on science. It's the same science. You guys get together and figure out why you think what you think. Tell us, and if there's a difference of opinion, tell us why that is and how we're going to resolve it going forward. My biggest concern is that people will say, they don't know what they're talking about, so I'm just bowing out and I'm not going to get the vaccine. And that will make for a very difficult fall when we expect COVID to make a resurgence. So I think this is where we really need to clarify things. And the short-term issue you brought up, There's a couple of hundred thousand doses of vaccine that will expire by the end of July. That would be a shame. We need to use them to give third shots. As I mentioned, 40% of British Columbians need that. And the fourth shots where people are allowed to get them uh, already.
0: That makes more sense to me. Dr. Conway, thanks for your time.
4: Always a pleasure.
0: Enjoy your afternoon tea. That's Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Makes way more sense when he explains that I don't know why health officials aren't being more forthcoming about that. They absolutely should be.
1: This
2: is Mornings with Simi.
0: We have been debating the issue of fish farms for a long time in this province. Now, VEG Ottawa has said that they're going to be coming up with a transition plan away from open net pen salmon farming in this province, and a draft framework of that plan is supposed to be shared in the coming weeks. Then there's going to be a new phase of consultation that's going to last until next year. This has all been coming from the Fisheries and Oceans Minister, Joyce Murray. But here's the thing. What they have done in the meantime is that dozens of fish farms outside the Discovery Islands are going to have their licenses renewed for another two years. Let's talk more about this. Bob Chamberlain joins us now, the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Good morning, Bob.
5: Good morning, Timmy.
0: How do you feel about this whole process of what they're doing?
5: Well, I think this process uh, needed to occur quite a number of years ago. But we are where we are, and I think that this is a, a step. And I think it's an important one given that they have not issued the licenses for discovery islands so that tells me that the dfo has finally realized and acknowledged the critical route that the discovery islands represent for fraser river salmon
0: okay so you view this as a little bit of progress
5: well it is a step forward and you know as they begin to unroll this this plan to develop the transition plan uh, i'm aware that uh, the dfo is Uh, made certain monies available to First Nations that have an interest in right to salmon. And so I think at this point, we're finally going to see First Nations of the Fraser River and the Thompson, whose fish migrate past Discovery Islands, are finally going to have a meaningful position to state their concerns about their Aboriginal rights and food security in relationship to the impact of fish farms, which has not happened
0: before. Right. We've been talking about fish farms for what decades now in this province bob are well,
5: we <laughs> right uh, where i'm from uh, the broughton archipelago we've been fighting this since the 1980s so this has been a very long decades. trouble yeah uh, struggle.
0: are we getting is the technological aspect of this improving right we always talked about we can do this better now given the technology that we have we can do this on land we can we can do this in a different way is that situation getting better
5: Uh, Yes, it is. You know, I I think back to uh, the industry publication called IntraFish, and about a year, year and a half ago, they started to uh, have a monthly update on the hottest growing sector in aquaculture, which, of course, is land-based closed containment. And so I just wonder why we don't pursue this in Canada and take part in the evolution of this industry.
0: Uh, is, Is there any interest, do you think, in pursuing it?
5: Oh, yes, I've talked to First Nations around the province, very keen on becoming involved in land-based closed containment because they don't want to see impacts to their traditional foods. And, of course, that's an interest to the environment and to all British Columbians that have caught a salmon with their uncle or their father or their grandfather and want to see that opportunity for their children.
0: Okay, so then are there, if their company is willing to do this, what is the governmental cooperation like in that regard? Is there support to companies who say, listen, we want to do this differently?
5: Well, I think what needs to happen is the government needs to stop talking to the ones that don't want to do it. Um, You can't, you know, that old adage, you can't make a horse drink water. But we need to be able to have a government create the environment for an emerging industry and provide the necessary supports, as has happened time and time again in the history of this country. And it's time for this to occur and for Canada uh, to realize that the the global demand for environmental uh, security and and better environmental products is here now. And we need to embrace that and move forward with land-based closed containment.
0: Do you think consumer behavior has changed here, Bob? Because that's such a powerful thing, right, to say for people to say, I don't want to eat salmon that is raised that way.
5: Well, I think what happens is when you start to investigate, and you really need to investigate the issues with open net cage fish farms. It gets very complicated very quickly. So I think the average consumer may not put that time and effort to understand what open net cage fish farms represent in terms of impact for their product. But it's at a point now where more and more people are realizing that there has been decades of obfuscation by uh, DFO and before that, previous provincial governments, to allow this industry to get the foothold that it has. And now we are seeing science that's been suppressed for 10 years being released. We're having emerging science, and of course, the harsh criticism of the Canadian Scientific Advisory Secretariat by people that were involved in the peer review process, which just takes away any foundation from DFO stating this is not a harm to wild salmon.
0: Are there are those techniques changing? Like, are those do those companies have any kind of an incentive to say we are going to do things differently?
5: Well, this is what I you know we we talk about. We don't if this company if the companies that operate today don't want to be in land based closed containment, let's quit talking to them. Let's talk to the industry partners that want to see that technology flourish, and you know quit beating a dead horse. I mean, this the, the fish in those farms represent a high level of disease pathogen in the sea lice shed, a key migratory routes for wild salmon. And I believe it's one of the key stressors and impacts to the horribly diminished salmon runs across this province where we're spiraling towards extinction.
0: So what do you want to hear then from the federal government on this? Like they they say they've got a plan, they're working towards it. What do you want to hear soon?
5: Well, what I understand is they've got a framework to develop the transition plan. So that is where, you know, this this. Detail will come out in the next in the coming weeks, I would imagine. But it's you know I'm I'm hoping and and wanting to see First Nations because we have a special place with constitutionally protected right, Supreme Court law on our side as well. But to understand that we fight for salmon not just for ourselves but for all British Columbians, and we've you know I've read I just read their press release from the DFO again and they talk about standardized reporting requirements and so forth. Well. Well, if we're just going to ask the industry to report their numbers, it's been verified the undercount sea lice, they hide uh, reasons for mass die-offs on their farms, and they certainly don't report out adequately the disease issues that are happening on their farms.
0: Still, after all this time?
5: After all this time, and I think that that really shows the character uh, of this industry. Uh, I recall when I was in Norway speaking to the CEO of, of one of the companies. Uh, internationally. And And I spoke about, why don't you bring your best understanding to Canada about your operations? And this person just smiled at me and said, we do what your government allows us to. And so to me, you know, that is not a good corporate citizen. I don't care what they do. That is wrong.
0: Right. So that's why these rules then, Bob, would be so important because it would be telling these companies, here is exactly what you are allowed to do.
5: Well, yes, and, you know, it's always in an industry such as this with the impact it represents, it does need stringent regulations. But if they're not monitored and if there's zero consequence for breaking them, what's the purpose then? Because we look at the current conditions of licenses, and let's just use sea lice as an example. If they go over what the regulation says, they get a stern talking to maybe a letter, and then they're given uh, six weeks to deal with the issue, which then just allows it to be perpetuated. If they break the regulations, the fish need to come out of the water, period.
0: All right. We'll wait and see what happens with this. Bob, thanks so much for your time.
5: Thank you for your time. Have a great day.
0: You too. That's Bob Chamberlain, Chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Allowance, waiting as we have for so long for this framework coming from the federal government about to transition away from open-net pen salmon farming in BC, as Bob was saying. How long have we been talking about this? 40 years in this province? Yes, we have. This plan is a long time coming. This is Mornings with Simi. There are pressures on our bills coming from all sides these days. Inflation, rising interest rates, shrinkflation, you name it. The price of groceries are rising, it's getting harder and harder to make those choices when we go to the grocery store. That's why this week we've been talking about the issue of couponing, because you know this used to be a thing, I feel like people are getting back into it more, but it can be a little overwhelming with all the different apps and places that you can go to to find deals. That's why we thought, you know what, let's get Raji to look into this for us, and she joins us now. Good morning, Raji.
1: Hi, Simi. Yeah, I used to coupon a lot in my teen years, actually. I loved helping my parents find the deals. And that was the traditional way, you know, where you cut them out only from the paper flyers. I loved that stuff. And actually, I really want to show off my favorite uh, deal I ever got, which was two sets of, this will take you back to the 90s, uh, two sets of Clairol lock and rolls that were $40 (laughs) a kit. And I, I got them for free. It's a weird flex because as you know, I already have Naturally Curly But that's besides the point. I got this major deal. I was so happy and it lasted. The deal like just it lit me up for couponing and the power of of a good deal. Uh, But I'll tell you why I fell out with couponing and those like minimum buy deals. It's because they're too fun. And it's easy to gamify it to the point that you're like, oh, I want to get this deal. I want to get that deal that you end up buying stuff just because you got a deal on it rather than, you know, the fact that you actually needed it or not. Do you ever do that?
0: Well, I think that's the thing you have to also be aware of, right? Am I buying this because it's a great deal or am I buying this because I actually need it?
1: Totally. Well, obviously now economic conditions have changed. So my I've got this renewed faith in couponing. So I've been ready to dive back in. I didn't know where to start. So I talked to Kelly West. She's a mom with a household of four on Vancouver Island. She's a full-time baker as well. So she really knows about the costs of grocery these days. And she's an admin on the quintessential coupon page. It's a Facebook group called Canadian Savings Group. They have almost 95,000 members from across Canada. And people post tips, uh, deals they've spotted. It's just an excellent community. And Kelly West says that that is where I need to start my couponing journey.
2: It is probably the best way to get started. They give you all of the tips, all of the information needed to get into it where you find coupons how to find coupons how to do it at checkout like how to go through checkout and, and not be overwhelmed you know you can find coupons both online you can find them in the grocery stores it's it's always best to pair a coupon with a sale and a like a pc points um, offer and and that way you can get the items for free or close to free
0: Okay. But how do you do that? Like she's, she knows how to pair all these things together, but it sounds like it it is going to take some work.
1: Yeah, it's going to take work. It's complex. You look at their website and it's a little bit overwhelming. This isn't something she takes casually either because uh, you have to be serious about it and you have to get ready to get your calculator out and do some uh, major math as well as a meal planning. Meal planning is an important component of this. Like you want to know what your family plans on cooking. Um, For Kelly, this actually couponing became a major part of how her family functions. They wanted to move to becoming a single-income family, and it was couponing that made it possible.
2: A few years ago, we decided to go down to a single-income family, and, you know, couponing has helped keep our grocery costs lower so that we are able to be a single-income family.
1: Wow, so it's made that much of a dent? It does. And how did you learn how to coupon?
2: Um, I just jumped into it and grabbed coupons that I could find in the store, checked over flyers saw what was on sale, what I had a coupon for, what it worked out to being. It's a lot of math and figuring out your best price per unit. I really just jumped in headfirst. And then a couple of years later, I started looking online and found different groups and different, different ways to go about it.
1: To me, it seems kind of intimidating because of the time invested into couponing. What do you have to say about that?
2: It it can be time consuming. Um, In the beginning, I probably spent four or five hours a week looking at deals. And as I've gone along, you know, it takes me 45 minutes now to go through my grocery list, see what I have, see what I have deals for, see what I need. Um, And then in the store, it's an extra five or 10 minutes at checkout once you get used to the way you're putting things up at the cash register. Um, Like, I always make sure that my coupons are all organized with my items. As I'm putting them up, I know what I have a coupon for at the cash register. I also have a separate area for things like price price matching so that at the end, I know I have eight or 10 items or whatever to price match. And I have the screenshots on my phone for all of the price matched items. And I it, it just becomes faster as you get more comfortable with it. So you're super organized. You kind of have to be. And it, I wasn't organized in the beginning and it took a lot longer but, as you do more of it, you get more organized,
0: okay, so practice makes perfect
1: <laughs> yeah, well, she talked a little bit there about the lineup, the queuing at the register, and you know, people will stand behind a couponer and she mentioned, oh, it might be an extra five to 10 minutes. But when you're standing behind a major couponer, that five to 10 minutes feels like an hour that you're never going to get back in your life. Um, so <laughs> one of the true. tips she had for me, Simi, was to bring some extra coupons and if the person behind you uh seems a little peeved or annoyed maybe you could uh, peruse quickly just a glance at their uh cart see if there's anything that you could uh offer them in terms of a coupon that might help out their bill oh my goodness genius
0: that is genius and you know what like wait and also you're helping somebody out you're helping them save a little money and it puts a smile on somebody's face if you're generous like that
1: Absolutely. Another thing that she said she does is she'll forecast kind of like, okay, this is something I don't need necessarily now, but down the road, I know I do need it at another time. And so she'll, she'll buy ahead for stuff. I don't tend to do that. So that's something that I'm going to look ahead at doing. And also I'm not going to be so intimidated anymore about those, um, minimum buy deals. I think that through some better meal planning, I can, I can, you know, hit those $300, marks that they they get you to hit at grocery stores in order to get the free thing because sometimes the free thing sometimes it is something that you would want
0: that's very true that's very true so you're into this now so is this something you're going to try when you go to the grocery store
1: so I joined their group and I have already been chatting with people in the group. Uh, I've been perusing the virtual aisles um, and, and have my eye now on trying to save more. Um, this is like, I feel like going to be a journey for me. It's not something I'm going to arrive at really quickly. Uh, so I'll let you know how it goes.
0: Okay. So I, I admire that you're going to tackle this. How many different apps are you going to start with? Or are you just starting with one?
1: Oh, I've got three going right now. Three. Okay. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm on these forums now. And so I'm asking people for tips. One thing that I have found is that uh, this site that uh, Kelly West is the admin for, uh, the Canadian Savings Group, this one is like a great community. Uh, They also have some rules, including that you're not meant to take anything from that group and post it outside of that group. Uh, And, you know, at 95,000 strong for their membership. Uh, that's like a pretty interesting rule to try and maintain. But if people are maintaining it, that's pretty solid. So we'll see how much money my family can save. She saves about 6000 a year, which is incredible. Wow. That's, that's I, I don't know lot. if I'm going to meet that much, but uh, I'll, I'll try on. for maybe $1,000. <laughs>
0: let us gamify this, Raji. The, 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 right? the hunt is on. I can't wait to get updates <laughs> to see how it's going for you. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thanks, Simi. That is our J. Selhal. If you want to share your couponing experience, too, or what ways in which you're trying to save money these days, let us know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the things that has dramatically changed about our buying habits in recent years, at least for some of us, is the fact that fewer of us are into fast fashion. No longer buying, like, the super cheap clothes that you can wear for maybe a month or two for one season, and then you're going to buy something else or a couple of things else, you know, for the next season. I think people are more interested in longer-term clothing because clothing waste is a huge issue, something Metro Vancouver has been talking about for a while now, too. So what are the different ways that you can, you know, improve the situation Well, one UBC psychology professor is trying something a little different. Actually sounds pretty easy, but we're going to find out how it works. Uh, Ying Zhao joins us now, an associate professor and Canada research chair in the Department of Psychology at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So you've decided that you're going to shop once a year. So what does this rule apply to?
6: This uh, this rule applies to uh, a happiness principle that... Uh, Liz Don and I developed. Basically, we want to engage in actions that promote our happiness as well as sustainability. So shopping frequently is abundant. Um, actually, but abundance reduces appreciation. So we enjoy each trip less and less. But if I only shop once a year, actually, I haven't shopped in two years. Now, I think that really makes us looking, look forward to the next trip. So it. If, if things are, you know, less frequent, then we enjoy them more. That's the idea.
0: Okay, I like this. So does that apply to online shopping, though? Or is it the idea that I'm going to you know, save up the things yeah. that I'm going to buy and do that once a year?
6: Online shopping, in-person shopping, window shopping applies to all of them.
0: Huh, interesting. Okay, so how do you make it work then? Like, do you make a list?
6: <laughs> yeah, I will make a list. Well, first of all, I, yeah, I probably will rewear a lot of the things I have. Um, the nice thing is that a lot of the the fashion trends is recycling, right? So the, the stuff I owned a long time ago now is back in fashion, so I can wear them. So true. Um, <laughs> I um, so this. Rule, I have to say that this rule applies to buying new stuff. So if you're buying second hand or if you're just getting old clothes from others, that's fine because you're not producing new. You know. Carbon emissions by getting new clothes. So secondhand shopping works. Um, I think exchange clothes also works if you you know just swap clothes with others. I know I'm not not many people do this, um, but but to, for me, one is just try to re-wear what I already have, and two, make a long list of what I want to buy in the ne- in, my, in my next trip, and. Sometimes I revisit that list and then realize, oh, wow, well, there's a lot of things I actually don't need. So the time also gives me, you know, a second thought on, on, on maybe I can cut down on these things. And maybe I, all, all I need is a coat, et cetera. So okay. that's my recommendation. Okay.
0: Well, tell me about this happiness principle and how did you develop this?
6: Yeah. So this uh developed with my uh, colleague at UBC, Professor Elizabeth Dunn. Uh, she's a happiness researcher. Um And we think that one way to go forward that can be effective in changing behavior is to make sure that our actions not only reduce carbon emissions for climate change, but also improve our individual happiness immediately. Right. So, so I think, you know, because a lot of the climate actions and environmental actions are, are, are about sacrifices and cutting down consumption and they don't actually make us feel that great. And they, 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 they make us feel great in the long run, but you know, in the, in the, in, the, in the short run, we kind of have to sacrifice and give up a lot. But I think by focusing or reorienting our actions to the to this kind of happiness principle, which is, you know, make sure that this action will generate net happiness and and make you feel better immediately. I think I think that approach has a potential. So, for instance, instead of eating steaks every week or every couple of days, you eat steaks once a month. Same with the shopping, like shopping every week. How about shopping once a month or even less frequent? So what this does is that it cuts down carbon emissions. It also makes us appreciate the next consumption a lot more. So I can't tell you how much I, I look forward to my next shopping trip. I don't know when that is. I think maybe toward the end of summer or early fall, but I really, really look forward to that one.
0: Okay, Al, I guess what this also does is help you appreciate, like you get a better understanding, I think, of what you need to buy versus what you just want to buy, right?
6: Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's, it kind of addresses in impulse buying as well, right? So it really makes me, it gives me time to think about what I really need thing I, I think I need tomorrow is really not necessary or really redundant, but if I have time to think about it, then I probably will scrap that from my list. So yeah, it does cut down impulse buying. That's, that's, that's our, that's our hold.
0: Okay. So when you make that list, then are you shopping for like all of the seasons? You know, how do you know what you're going to need in
6: the whole year? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, so when I shop, I don't actually go to the stores in downtown. Um, I go to the outlet that has pretty much clothes from all seasons. So yes, I would shop for the things, that I think I think I need the most. So it could be a winter jacket, it could be a, a shirt for work. Um, it doesn't. I mean, I don't think seasonality is critical here. If if you really need a coat, then you need to get a coat. Um, but I think uh, you know. Most of us are actually probably have multiple coats and we, we we would like to get the next coat, not because we need it, because, but because it looks good or it's in, in fashion or the colors. Now it's the, the the color of the year, et cetera, et cetera, or the, the, you know, the style of the year, for instance. So I think, yeah, so I, I don't think you know we should restrict ourselves from really necessary things. But really, I think that that the, this 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 approach cuts down the things that we kind of like. Oh yeah, well, I, I would love to get it, but but I really don't need it. So it's, it's, it's right. that kind of um, impulse. Well, I'm, I'm not really impulse buying, but maybe you know, the, the, buying not based on necessity.
0: Right. What I've always tried to do is that if I'm in a store and I see something and I really want it, I make myself put it down and leave. <laughs> and then I think, <laughs> you know what? if I'm still thinking about it an hour from now or the next day or whatever, then I'll go back and get it. But nine times out of 10, you've completely forgotten about it an hour later.
6: <laughs> that's true. That shows that we probably don't need it in the first place. And two, it was really a moment that you saw the clothes, a piece of clothing, and you, you thought, wow, I really like it. I want to get it, right? So that's kind of a um, really kind of a fast reaction toward shopping. Whereas I like your approach of just put it down, I'll come back to it if I really want it or if I really need it. Um, and yeah, you're right. Most people just I'll probably just move on from then.
0: Yeah. Right. Because you're just thinking about it in that moment. I, I'm also thinking like, am I hungry? Do I need to go eat something? <laughs> so it helps you decide if that's an impulse buy, which really, I think that's what we're talking about here, isn't it, Jayang? Is it? Pete, we're, exactly. we've been doing too much impulse buying.
6: Yes. I mean, that, that's that's part of the problem of fast fashion, Hmm.
0: Okay, so how do you get the word out to do something like this? Do you think this is catching on?
6: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's catching on. So we developed a Happy Climate workshop. This is a, a joy workshop between me and Liz. It's freely available online. Um, it's happyclimate.org. I encourage anyone to take a look at the website and take a look at our 10-minute workshop. And then you can start to think about what actions are both happy for you and also happy for the climate so it's um it's 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 entirely free and i also encourage people to email me if they have have any questions um yeah that's that's one way to get the word out
0: i love it the happiness principle thank you so much for joining us this morning
6: thank you for having me
0: that's Yang Zhao, who's an associate professor and Canada research chair in the Department of Psychology at University of British Columbia, talking about something she has developed called the happiness principle. And one of the ways in which they do that is deciding that they're not going to stress out about shopping. They're going to shop once a year. Now, I think this is a great idea. In fact, during the pandemic, I probably have been doing this too, and it does help you cut down on that impulse buying. And listen, these days, any way we can save money is probably a good thing. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. Oh, we've got some traffic problems out there.